So, tonight we are continuing our discussion into the holidays. This is our third time meeting here. The first time we spoke about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Last week was Yom Kippur. Yeah, you missed it. And I missed too? Yeah. I guess. Today yeah. is Sukkot. This and is next week is Simchat Torah. For seeing you. Okay. But, you know, Lily, we always focus on where we are and where we're going. So the past is the past. I know. Can't change the past. No. The, the, the positive thing is that you're making it to the happy holidays. Because yeah. Sukkot is a happy, happy holiday. So imagine that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, while not sad days, are solemn days, serious days, because you have a very important objective you're trying to secure a sweet new year, trying to break free of the past, and that's serious work. Someone gives you an opportunity so amazing, you want to make sure you do everything possible to try and secure that opportunity successfully. Now you've done that. It's in the bag, as they say. You've sealed your year, signed, sealed, and delivered. Now Sukkot comes, and it's time to celebrate. It's time to celebrate. It's like you make the team, and finally, after the tryouts, you've been secured a spot on the team. Now it's time to celebrate with your teammates. And that's what Sukkot represents. So when we think of Jewish holidays, we often think of Hanukkah, right? Such a popular Jewish holiday, especially it's around the when I was a kid, it wasn't so popular. When you pop it. True. But recently, it's become very popular. It's very festive, and it's commercialized, and it's during a holiday season for a lot of people. But... No services, no, no, no restrictions like Yom Kippur. True. And Passover. And Passover. It doesn't have those kind of restrictions. And afterwards, you get sick. And afterwards, you eat donuts, and then you get sick. That's... That so could be Hanukkah, Purim, and, and Sukkot are like the most festive holidays. Well, what I wanted to explain was right. that actually Hanukkah and Purim are not biblical holidays. Mm. That's true. They are not biblical holidays. That's so when you, when you talk about festivals, biblical festivals, there are three of them. Sukkot, which we're going to talk about tonight. You have then Pesach, Passover, of course. And then Shavuot, which celebrates the Jewish people receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai. Those are three biblical festivals. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, also biblical holidays. Not so much as festivals, but still very important days. But Purim, Hanukkah are not biblical festivals. Those were instituted by the rabbis and the sages later on after they took place because they commemorated such amazing miraculous events. So it's important to understand the differences between them. I'm a big believer we should do all of them, obviously. But even then, to understand what is biblical, what is written in the, in the books, and what was designed later on by the sages. So Sukkot is one of those three festivals. And specifically about the festivals, we know that you're supposed to be joyous. The festivals commemorated a time when the Jews would make pilgrimage. Okay, pilgrimage, right? They would make their way to Jerusalem, to the temple. And when there, they would bring a special sacrifice. They would participate in the services that were taking place in the temple. So it was an extremely joyous time. As you can imagine, people traveling from the north and the south, parades of people as they passed through the town, you would join along, and so these groups grew bigger and bigger, thousands and thousands and thousands of people all streaming in to Jerusalem and then into the temple to celebrate. It's interesting that even today, even today, if you go to Israel, on the festivals, especially on Sukkot and Shavuot, Passover is more of a festival that you celebrate at home, but those other two festivals, Jerusalem is packed, packed with people that come from all over the world 
to try and recreate that experience of making pilgrimage. I've never been there for Sukkot, but I have been there for Shavuot, and it is incredible. You pray at the wall, and there's literally 10,000 people standing there praying together with you. It is jammed. The entire plaza, for anyone that's ever been there, the entire plaza is full, full of people all streaming into the old city. And if you close your eyes for a second, you could really recreate the image in your mind of what it was like when the Jewish people all came to this moment. And it's important to remember that, you know, we tend to romanticize about things that were. And so today we look at the Jewish people and we see that they're very different. There's a lot of division. And it is true. There's, there's people that are more orthodox and less and conservative and reform and on the left and on the right and front and back and all these different divisions. And, and it saddens us. Uh, no better example than the elections taking place today in Israel. And not that elections shouldn't take place in a country, but the, the, the division and the vitriol and so on is truly unfortunate. The reality is that even back in biblical times, there was a lot of division amongst the various tribes. So remember, when the Jewish people come into the land of Israel, which we actually will talk about in the Torah portion this Shabbat, they come into, they're going to come into the land of Israel, they pacify the land, and then they start to divvy it up. And just like that, the land of Israel goes to 12 different tribes. Each tribe has their own prince their own internal hierarchy, their own internal government. So what binds them all together as one people? What unites all the Jewish people? Their temple, their temple, their high priest. Those were the only fixtures that really united and brought them together. Now, obviously when Moses was alive, he was such an amazing leader, there was true unity. Even under Joshua, who picked up and carried off just where Moses left off, the unity stayed in place. But after Joshua, the tribes started to splinter. Some of them drew, grew into real wars amongst each other. It was very sad. Those moments of pilgrimage were the, some of the only moments during the year where you really got the sense of unity of the people because everybody wanted to fulfill the commandments the tradition to ascend to the temple and be seen on these special days so it really was a moment of unity where everyone put aside their differences the north the south if you were a tribe that was wealthy or a tribe that was learned or great merchants or great fighters it didn't matter you all came together to the temple now, the temple was not in Jerusalem initially. It was in Shiloh, which is somewhere northeast of Jerusalem in the West Bank today. And only generations later, under King David, would the temple eventually come there, actually under King Solomon. The process started under King David. So the pilgrimage really was such a powerful experience and such a powerful reminder of what brought all the Jewish people together. And so for even for us today, we look at these festivals as a time to celebrate and rejoice. Each one a little different and unique. Sukkot and Passover and Shavuot are all celebrating and commemorating different moments throughout Jewish history, but they have that commonality in that they all bring us together. So as we've done previously, let's start off by how we prepare. How do we prepare for this holiday? So, one of the ways that you prepare for the holiday is to give your wife a gift. Hmm. I didn't know that. I know. It's not one that's widely publicized for, ob for obvious reasons. A child? No, you don't have to give your wife a child. But it says that because it is a time of rejoicing, one of the ways that we bring joy is when we acquire something new, practically speaking. And so as an expression of the joy that you're feeling, there's a custom to buy your wife something new before the holiday, so before these days. three festivals, till this very day. Yeah, so these days it's probably the wife is going to want some jewelry. Everybody's different. It doesn't have to be jewelry. It could be, oh, you know, that's, that's up to everyone individually. But the point is that, the point is, is very simple. And I think it's a very important one. 
It's not enough to just have feelings that don't express themselves. Ultimately, they fade away. We need to take our feelings and we need to express them in an action. Mm -hmm. One of the ways we express feelings for the people that we love is we buy them something nice. It doesn't have to be expensive. It's about the thoughtfulness. It doesn't say anywhere that it needs to be expensive. But that's how we express that we care and we love someone that we're thinking about them when we buy something for them. And so it's a reminder to us in everything that we do. If you have feelings, powerful, strong feelings, but you don't express them, then the feelings simply fade away. Same thing could be say, said in Judaism. Someone feels connected to God. They feel very much uh, connected to their Jewish identity and their Jewish culture. And then you ask them, well, what do you do about it? Um, I don't know, not, nothing much. Well, something doesn't add up. Because if you really feel passionate about something, you're going to do it. If you're a passionate sports fan, you're going to go to the game, you're going to buy a jersey, you're going to watch them on television, because you feel, right? If you're passionate uh, about food, you're going to cook food, you're going to go to a nice restaurant, you're going to eat out. If you're passionate about exercising, you're going to be fit and eat and all these things. Passion and emotion that doesn't express itself in action is missing something. And so this is a great reminder that what we feel should express itself in real, uh, tangible actions. So we traditionally buy something nice. Uh, we give extra charity before the holiday, similar to the way we'd give extra charity before Shabbat, because you can't give charity on Shabbat. So if somebody sets a goal of giving some charity every single day, which is a beautiful tradition, it's not about how much, even if you give a penny every single day, that's the way we train our children, every single day they should give a penny. The action of always doing something to help another individual helps train us to grow up as children and ultimately live that way. But if you can't give charity on the holiday or on Shabbat, you give a little extra beforehand. Our personal custom is that before we light candles, right? we light the candles in the evening, the night before, before we light the candles, we give extra charity. And then the other special tradition that we do is the lulav and the etrog. I was hoping to get one to be able to do this as a demonstration, but of course, they don't ship in for another couple of weeks. We're a little bit yeah, early. We are a little bit early. So the lulav and the etrog. The lulav and etrog are four different kinds of vegetation. The lulav is a date palm a long stem of a date palm. And it is attached with three myrtles and two willow branches. All those three are bound together. And then a citrum, which is a special citrus fruit, is brought together with the lula venetro. And together, we have this special blessing that we make. So you want to put that together, you want to bind that together or secure it in whatever capacity before the holiday starts so that you know you have what you need to celebrate the holiday. Those are all the things that technically you want to do beforehand. Now, what are the actual mitzvot, the actual traditions associated with this holiday? So let's talk about the most iconic of them, which is to build a sukkah. Why do we make a sukkah? What is the origin of the holiday? So the word sukkot means booths. And it commemorates when the Jewish people left Egypt and were traveling in the desert. Initially, they camped in booths. It's a demonstration of faith. They didn't have protection. They didn't have a town to live in. They didn't have anything. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you. They didn't have much of anything, but they knew that God had told them, we're leaving Egypt, we're going to Mount Sinai, and then we're going to the land of Israel. And so, in this expression of faith, they left, and they allowed themselves to be exposed completely to the elements in these makeshift huts, and that's the way they lived. And so oh, we would... Because they had to pick them And then they had to go and, and move, that's right. But this is before they even had tents. So as us, so many generations later, we are trying to 
tap into our reservoir of faith. How strong is our faith? Now, it's one thing to say that my faith is so strong that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I'm going to go to synagogue and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to pray for a few hours and I'm going to do everything I got to and eat the apples and the honey and the rams and this and I'm going to eat all the stuff. Do everything I need to do. Okay, no problem. Inside, in comfort, in air conditioning, surrounded by your friends, cut off from the rest of the world. Okay, it's a nice expression of faith. But how strong is that faith? Well, let's test it. Is it strong enough that you can take it outside? Out of your comfort zone? Out in front where other people can see what you're doing into the public view? And do you still maintain that same strength of faith and commitment? What will happen then? That's what Sukkot tests us. It forces us to ask the question, how strong is my conviction and my commitment to my Jewish identity? You know, it's one thing to go privately into your house of worship and pray to your God. Well, a lot of people do that. There's lots of different religions, lots of different uh, houses of worships. But how many religions require you to go and eat outdoors in a booth, in a hut for seven, eight, nine days? We'll talk about the different traditions in a minute. Not as many. And so that's where our faith gets tested to see how strong it is, how far our commitment goes. And yeah, it's not comfortable. It's not. You're exposed. Uh, if you live in, in the north, you might be exposed to snow. to snow. That's right. You could have snow. If you live in Tampa, you're exposed to the heat. Rain, heat. Hurricanes. Yeah. When I was a kid, I remember one year there was a hurricane that came to uh, my dad's sukkah. He lives up in North Tampa. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like a direct hit, but no, you're you eating outdoors in a little booth. Um, even a tropical storm can wipe out your sukkah. And half the sukkah collapsed. So the roof, half the sukkah caved in. And we had some guests over, and all the guests went inside, but my dad. You know, he stayed outside to finish his dinner because he only eats in the sukkah. And I remember as a kid, I must have been maybe 10 years old and 11 years old, and my father let me sit there with him. And I felt like a million bucks. And you know what? This is, what, almost 30 years later? But I remember it vividly. And it's a great reminder that it's those moments that kids don't forget that really gets imprinted on them. The commitment, we weren't in danger or anything like that. You know, it was a little rainy and we were a little uncomfortable, but I'll never forget that. And that really stayed with me to say, look at how strong our commitment was. You know, how proud we were to celebrate this mitzvah, that we were going to finish our chicken soup, even if it had more rain than soup. <laughs> so you are exposed to the elements. You are uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, you, 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 you do have mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> We try to take care of at least the mosquitoes. But that uncomfortability is, is part of the process. It's part of the process. Uh, I remember once as a, uh, a teenager, I was traveling with my family during the holiday. And uh, we're going to talk about in a little bit how parts of Sukkot are celebrated as strict holiday. So, for example, I wouldn't drive and so on. Uh, and parts of the, the holiday are intermediate days where we eat in a sukkah, but we do travel and so on. And I think we went to uh, Bush Gardens. So uh, after my bar mitzvah, everything I ate was inside of a sukkah. That's our, our tradition. If you're gonna go spend the day in, in Bush Gardens, you gotta have a way to eat. So we have a small sukkah. It opens up maybe this wide, three feet by three feet or so. And we set it up in the parking lot of Bush Gardens right next to our car. And we had some lunch, me and my brother, he's two years younger we than me. We were tailgating. We were tailgating, exactly. And the security officer drives by, and I see, you know, I see him drive by once, and he looks out, and he drives off, and then he drives by again, like a minute later. You know, finally, he, he, he worked up the courage to drive by, and he asked us what we were doing. And we explained it to him, you know, this is what we were doing, this is, we're Jewish, we're celebrating this holiday, and so on. And, 
And he was just mesmerized. We were probably maybe 14, 15 years old. But the idea that a teenager should be so committed that they were going to schlep out of the park just to eat a sandwich during the day, it just it blew his mind. And so it is. It's an expression of how far our faith and our commitment goes. Are we ready to inconvenience ourselves in order to fulfill our traditions? Or is it something that we only do when it's convenient for us? That's the question that Sukkot poses to each and every one of us. So how do you make a sukkah? What does it take to make a sukkah? So a sukkah is a hut, it's a booth, but it's very interesting. It does have to have certain things. It has to have walls, but not as many as you might think. Technically, if a sukkah has two walls, two walls, two full walls, and a little bit of a third wall, maybe a foot long, that would be enough. And the other parts could remain open and would still qualify as a sukkah, as a hut. So the walls only need to have two walls, and it has to have a little bit of a third wall, and that would be enough. Walls can be made out of anything. Really, anything. As long as they're secure enough that a strong wind wouldn't blow it down. A strong wind doesn't mean 150 miles an hour. It means, you know, a 20 mile an hour wind wouldn't blow the sukkah away. So you can use the walls of your house. You could use tables, yeah, canvas, fabric. You can use bamboo sheets. You can use whatever you want. People use lattice. Doesn't matter. As long as the wall would not blow away, it's secure. The walls can be made out of whatever you want. Two walls and a little bit, and you're all set. So sometimes you might have like a lanai. That, that's what I was going to say, by knees in Costa Rica. Yeah, if you have a lanai. They, in, in the patio. You just in, roll out the schach. Right? That's the sukkah. Well, they made all what it needs to have, okay? Right. But that is the sukkah. You, you could have the walls of your sukkah can stay up all year round. You don't have to put them up, take them down. So if you had like a lanai or you had some kind of outdoor structure, that's all good. What is the essence of the sukkah? The essence of the sukkah is the rooftop. The rooftop is the essence of the sukkah. The Hebrew word for the rooftop of a sukkah is schach. If you were gonna write that down, I would spell it S-C-H-A-C-H. That is the essence of the sukkah. And therefore, that part has to be placed on the sukkah within 30 days of the holiday. So you can't leave that up all year round because that's something that you are setting up specifically, intentionally, just for this holiday. Now, what is schach made out of? It's made out of vegetation. So while the walls can be made of anything you want, the rooftop cannot be made of anything you want. The rooftop must be made of vegetation that grew from the ground and is no longer connected to the ground. There's a great kid's book about a, uh, a sukkah that was built next to a tree. And the tree saw the sukkah and wanted to participate in the holiday. So the tree bent over the sukkah thinking, oh, look, I'll provide shade. But of course, it invalidates the sukkah because the sukkah has to be directly under the stars, under the heavens, right? And like we said, you can't have vegetation that's attached to the ground as part of the rooftop. It has to be vegetation that's no longer connected to the ground. So every time the tree tried to bend over the, they would move the sukkah away. And the tree grew sad. It's, it's, a, it's a very sad children's story. Yeah, I know. Until finally the tree started crying and then the, fam, the father realized and they communicated and kumbaya. The point is if you communicate, everything gets fixed. Right. But in any event, so you have to have vegetation disconnected from the ground. So I'll give you examples. Bamboo, very popular uh, rooftop for a sukkah. People use bamboo, poles of bamboo or bamboo sheets. Bamboo sheets that are woven together. That's what we use and you, they roll them out 
and it provides one thick cover. People use palm, which well, is a little tricky because you need a lot of palm. In New York City, people use evergreen, bushes of evergreen. Uh, branches cut off from evergreen trees are very thick, so it works really effectively, really well. You can use anything you want, as long as it's disconnected from the ground. And the vegetation is really a fantastic uh, example of how we look at growth in the world around us. Ultimately, our ability to grow requires us, we've talked about this previously, to remain rooted to our source. Just like for a tree or any plant to grow, it must remain rooted to its source. Same to here, it must remain rooted to its source. But the schach specifically becomes disconnected. So we know that it's not going to survive. It's going to die out. Right? It will only last a certain amount of time. And so it's a reminder to us of the fact that when we have those moments, we have those opportunities, we need to take full advantage of them because those moments and those opportunities are fleeting. They're here one minute, and then they're gone the next. So that's how we build our sukkah. You can't have a sukkah higher than 30 feet high, but you can have as large a sukkah as you want. You can have lots and lots of people. Our sukkah that we make in the back of our home, we have a big sukkah party. Everyone will be invited to join us. Our sukkah in our home is like 20 feet by 20 feet. It's a nice size sukkah. There's a sukkah in Manhattan that's 100 feet by 100 feet outside of the Manhattan Public Library. Huge, giant sukkah. They make sukkahs in Israel. Ginormous. I mean, huge. So you can make a sukkah as wide and as long as you want, but it can't be taller than 30 stories because then it's no longer considered oh, like a home. Yeah. And the Why idea is it should be a new high? home. Why would they that so well, you know, tall ceilings are really nice. Okay. My dad actually has an air-conditioned sukkah. Very smart person. Yeah, he has. When, it, when he doesn't have a window unit. He has a one and a half ton unit with an intake and an outtake and a thermostat, and he puts panels in his walls, and he has a cool sukkah, literally cool sukkah. It doesn't get hot. So I, uh, you know, I always tell him it kind of defeats the purpose, but um, he gets tremendous joy when my grandmother, his mother-in-law, comes down to the holiday for dinner, and she has to put on a sweater. <laughs> we beat the heat. Uh, all right. So the, the sukkah becomes our new home. It truly does. It becomes our new home. We try to spend time there, obviously, during mealtimes, but even outside of mealtimes. The idea is to immerse ourselves in this new environment. Now, some people have the custom to sleep in their sukkah. Mm-hmm. It's not the Chabad custom, thankfully, but there are many, oh, other, yeah. Yeah, many other Jews that sleep in their sukkah uh, at night. You put a little cot in the corner or something like that, and that's where they... Uh, that is where they spend the seven or eight days. And you have to decorate all the walls. Uh, decorating, yep, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and the Ush pieces. Yep, yep, it's all coming up. It's all coming up. So, one of the beauties of the mitzvah of Sukkot, if you look at this mitzvah, typically when you do any kind of Jewish tradition, it's a very personal, individual experience. You know, if someone lights candles on Shabbat, they're lighting candles as an individual. Even if you come on Rosh Hashanah and you hear the shofar, the blowing the, the shofar horn, we're going to do here in um, just under two weeks, you're listening to the shofar, and then someone else is listening to the shofar. It's still an individual experience. But sukkah is one of the only opportunities where the mitzvah itself binds you together. Because think about it, you're eating in the sukkah, and the mitzvah literally encompasses everyone equally. All five, six, seven, ten, twenty of us, we all are eating together in this one sukkah. So the unity that the holiday achieves is incomparable. Because you are literally bound together in this action. This edifice is connecting and uniting all of you. And that's a very, very important and powerful message. And I want to show you another example of unity. So turn over your page. Remember we talked about 
how each one of the four different vegetations that you bring together for the lulav, so on. So look on the bottom left corner. The bottom left corner, it goes through each one and we talk about what they signify. So the lulav, the palm for example, right? That is the spine. It's like a spine, okay? The myrtle looks like eyes. I will show you. Just one second. Oh, look at that. Or not. So this, right over here, these large leaves over here, these are the myrtle and the willow. So the, and the spine would be the lulav, and then of course the citron. Now, the hadas, the myrtle, are like eyes. The arava, the willow, are thinner, so they're like lips. And then the etrog, the citrus, is like a heart different parts of the body, but all serving an important purpose in order for a person to be able to function as one unit. Keep going. What are some of the other differentiations? Well, the palm has taste and scent. Palm has, taste? yes, because the palm produces dates. Oh, It's okay. a date palm. Okay. So that's the specific kind of palm that okay. you use for the lulas, the date no, palm. No, I, I was thinking that you are talking about the leaves. No, no, not the leaves itself. No. So it has it taste is. and scent, which represents a person that studies Torah and performs mitzvot. Or in this case, studies Torah but doesn't perform mitzvot. So they have taste from their study, but they don't have a scent because they don't act. Then you have the myrtle. The myrtle smells really fragrantly. You tear open the myrtle and you smell it, it's incredible. So here you have the smell, but no taste. That signifies someone that performs, but doesn't study. Then you have the willow. The willow doesn't have taste, doesn't have scent, has garnished, as we say. That represents an individual that doesn't study and doesn't perform. Plenty of those too. And of course, the etrog, the citrus, has both taste and scent. It's extremely fragrant. Yeah. Imagine like a lemon on steroids. Mm -hmm. And it tastes incredible. People make jelly out of it. Um, just to give you an idea, these etrog, these citrons, are very difficult to grow. Very, very difficult to grow. It's a very temperamental fruit. Uh, they're grown primarily in Israel or in Italy in a region called Calabria. They, they will run you on the cheaper side. Exactly. Um, on the cheaper side, you can get one probably for about 60 or $75. Mm -hmm. That's on the cheaper side. Yeah, but afterwards comes the, the point of where it has some blemish and it start being nudnix. Well, that, uh, if you're, th then you get it for 60 If you want a really pretty one, they will run you it's $500 for sure, for sure. And I will tell you this, talk about people go crazy. I know. Why? This is why. It's generally accepted that anytime you do a mitzvah, you want to do it as beautiful as possible, right? I mean, well, yeah, but you, of course, you know, oh, all within reason. But if you're going to light candles, if you're going to make kiddush, if you're going to anything, any tradition you're going to do, you want to do it in as beautiful fashion as you possibly can. But specifically about the mitzvah of the etrog, of this citron, it says you should take a pretty fruit. Not a perfect, a pretty. It doesn't say perfect, but it says a pretty that's fruit. That's what I'm saying, because they fight for the perfect. Well, listen, no one should be fighting. Obviously, unfortunately, oh. sometimes people allow their religious fervor to get the best of them, and I'm not encouraging that, but it is kind of give people this license to say, you know, we, we want to really make sure we get a beautiful, beautiful etrog. So people do spend a lot of money on their etrog. 
And when you look at this, this box here, and you see all the ways that these different fruits are so unique and so different from one the other, you start to understand the value and the beauty of bringing them all together to make this blessing. Again, it's a tremendous example of unity. You know, you look at the people and oftentimes we think that, well, who's the most important part of the Jewish people? All oh, the people that learn, the people that observe, the people that do both, but you know, the people that don't really learn or don't observe or just kind of in name only or don't even identify, eh, they're not really important. They've already checked out. They're pretty much have ostracized themselves. We don't need to worry about ourselves about that. And the mitzvah of Lulav and Etro comes along and says, no. A people is a people, like a body is a body. And every part is essential and serves an important purpose. So if you're missing one part, you're missing. And so if you want to shake the Lulav and Etro, because how do we celebrate the tradition? We bring them all together, and we make a blessing, and we shake it. If you want to shake the Lulav and Etro, if you as a people want to experience movement and growth, you need to bring everyone together. You need to bring everyone together. And you know what? It doesn't mean they always change right away. The person that doesn't learn and doesn't observe, maybe they still don't learn and they don't observe. But maybe they do it a little bit more than they did before. Maybe being close to the citron or the myrtle or the date influences them and says, hey, I don't wanna just be like a willow. I wanna upgrade. And slowly but surely, that's how we influence and impact our surroundings. By first of all, recognizing the value and the importance. I left it ajar. It's okay? Yeah. What was that? Is that a problem? Do I need to punch them out? No, but in the future, the point yeah, is know. to leave it closed. So that's why you should leave it closed. Um, so that's why it's so important to make sure that we don't, can you go see what it is, Robert? Yeah, of course. That's why we have to make sure that we don't. We don't ostracize and exclude anyone in the process. Okay. The last mitzvah of Sukkot so we've talked about the mitzvah of eating in the sukkah. We've talked about the mitzvah of shaking the lulav and etro. Both are essential. The last mitzvah is to be joyful. Is to be joyful. So if you look at the three festivals we talked earlier about, the festival of Passover is known as the time of our freedom, time of our redemption. The festival of Shavuot is known as the time when we receive the Torah, receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The festival of Sukkot is simply known as the festival of rejoicing. Imagine, you are responsible with what? Being happy. That's your total responsibility. Isn't that incredible? I think it's amazing. Now, when I say happiness, what does that mean, happiness? And again, feelings without expressions don't last. They don't have the, the real strength that a feeling should have if it doesn't express itself. So how do you express yourself in rejoicing? So let me tell you a little bit about what took place in the temple during this holiday. It was a time of rejoicing. Starting from the second night of the temple, they would light these large torches and everybody would get together outside of the courtyard of the temple and they would sing and dance. The Levites would play music on their special harps and the cymbals and the trumpets that they had and the priests would stand next to them and blow the shofar and people would dance. Men would dance with the men, the ladies would dance separately in the ladies' courtyard, quite simply, because that's what you do when you're joyful. I don't have to explain it to you, right? What do we do when we're at a wedding? Hopefully it's a happy occasion, right? You dance, that's what you do. And if you're not sure, come to a Hasidic wedding because you dance and you dance and you dance, that's right. Uh, but the idea is quite simply that when somebody is joyful, that's the way they express it. So the same thing applies on the holiday of Sukkot. If a person is feeling intense joy, Welcome. then they're going to seek to express it. So starting from the second night, that's what people do on Sukkot. 
gather with your family, with your friends, and you dance. Now, I think it's important to highlight the fact that today we think of happiness in the terms of what is going to bring me my happiness. What are the steps that I need to take in order to be happy? Well, I need to advance my job, or I need to uh, acquire something new, I need some new kind of status, I need to lose 15 pounds, all these different goals that we set for ourselves. And the, the intention is saying that once I accomplish and achieve that goal, then happiness will come as a result. And sometimes it does, but more often than not, when we approach our happiness from that perspective, we get there, we're happy, it lasts about 20 minutes, and then, for some reason, we're not happy anymore. Maybe not even 20 minutes. Once you achieve... That's it. It's done. It's done. Then you need another piece of chocolate. No, that's not. Nissi, my two-year-old, is learning how to use the restrooms. So, he used it successfully tonight. And he got a little piece of dark chocolate. Like a little... Um, and he's associating... He's associating something positive and joyful with this milestone that he's accomplished and achieved. Except that he's... Oh, right, thank you. thank you. When he, when he successfully completes the well, training process, then we'll get safe. a mazel tov. Oh, yes, of course. And it will be some... I believe this is the hardest part down. of parenting. Harder than anything. I, my children aren't dating yet, so I can't say that. But, so far, I think this is the hardest part of parenting. But in all seriousness, he's a two-year-old. So the goal is that as he matures and gets older, we start to dispel this notion that his happiness is gonna come from getting that little piece of dark chocolate. Because we know, all of us who have lived, know that it doesn't work. And so on a, on a holiday that highlights joy and rejoicing, you ask yourself, what are they celebrating? Why are they so happy? Why are they dancing? What, what is it that makes them so joyful? Did they, did they win something? Did they get something new? I mean, they're, they're eating outdoors in a hut. What, what, what could that possibly bring such intense joy that they feel inspired? So it's a joy that comes from within, an inner joy. And that's the most powerful joy that a person can achieve in their life. And inner joy comes from when a person realizes and celebrates who they are. I am who I am. God created me this way, with these strengths and these weaknesses, this package, put me in this position as part of this people, and gave me an opportunity to celebrate these wonderful festivals. And joy that comes from within is the most powerful joy and the most sustainable joy. Nothing that happens in your life can take that away from you. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So it's a great reminder as to how we ascribe joy and happiness every other day after Sukkot. We don't have to wait for something to happen to be happy. <laughs> I was talking with a friend of mine today, and we were talking about this exact challenge. <laughs> and we said, for most people, most people, their life is like this. Misery, 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 misery. A few minutes of joy, right? They go on a vacation. They, they, they watch a great movie. Their sports team wins a game. A few minutes of joy. Misery, 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 misery. A few minutes of joy. Misery, misery. Think about it. It sounds funny, but it's true. For most people, that's the way life is. We kind of trudge through it begrudgingly. All right, this My and that. My does not all dispute what you're saying. Your what? My laughter does not know you. <coughs> By all means, I, I didn't. Uh... But that's, that's the human condition. And it, it's, it's sad when you think about it, how much time and energy uh, we expend really in, 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 in misery, in depression, and how few moments are truly celebrated. And as society becomes more goal-oriented, which today we're very goal-oriented, right? We need to be accomplished and achieve. And if you, know, if you don't have a million dollars by the time you're 30 years old, you're a bum, pretty much. I mean, you, right? That's the way we think these days. How quickly can I get to the objective? Everything has to happen instantaneously. That's what we expect. 
So as a result, we condition ourselves to think that everything is about these goals and these milestones and so on, but what it takes to get there is totally inconsequential. And that's where the problem starts. The prize is the process. That's the prize. The process. How you live your life every single day, that's what you celebrate. Oh yeah, it's nice when you have the bat mitzvah, or the child is born, or the wedding, or the promotion, or whatever it is. You get a new car, that's great. That's all wonderful. But the reason that the new car is exciting is because you worked hard every single day. That's what made that getting that new car so special. So if you remind yourself of that on day one, you say, this is so wonderful. I'm so excited to go to work today because going to work today allows me to fulfill my raison d'être in this world, my mission. I get to improve my life, improve the lives of people around me, and I'm creating stability for my family and contributing towards greater goals that I have. So I get to enjoy day one and day two and day 65. And on day 100, as a natural result of the good decisions that I made, I get a new car. But my happiness didn't start on day 100. It started on day one. So think about it. Rosh Hashanah comes and we talk to God, we commune, we pray, we eat honey, all of those things. We want to have a sweet year. And hopefully we've been written in the book of life. Eight days later, Yom Kippur comes around. And now we try to seal the deal. We regret the bad mistakes that we've made and so on. And we, we say to God, look, give us another chance. Give us another year. We're going to do better. Four days later, we're already celebrating. What happened? It's not like God already gave you a great, you didn't have the year yet. You have no idea. Are you going to win the lottery? You don't know what's going to happen this year. It would make more sense to celebrate Sukkot at the end of the year. Right? Think about it. At the end of the year, you stop and say, wow, look what happened. What an amazing year. It was fantastic. Let's have a holiday there. You simply rejoice. No, we will rejoice right after Yom Kippur, right when we start, when we start to get to work. Day four of our new existence, of the new me, right? The new Luis. And he's already celebrating because every day is a, is a holiday. Every day is something to celebrate. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I understand the meaning and purpose for why I exist. And I'm living according to that purpose. This is fantastic. What could be better than this? So some days... You know, it's going to be going to the doctor's office and getting your skin chopped off. That was the job for today. And maybe it was a little painful, but that's what God wanted you to do today. You take it, you smile, you get through it, and you move on. And some days it's going to be balloons and cake. And I had both in the same week. But the point is that as long as you're always asking yourself, am I living in connection with who I am and my reason for being here in this world. And if I am, then every day is a day to celebrate. So Sukkot, the festival of rejoicing, is an opportunity to ask ourselves this question. What brings us happiness? What does it take to make me happy? And if the answer to that is, uh, you know, a new flat screen television or desperate housewives with a tub of ice cream, <laughs> It's going to be a long life, a long, long life. And it's going to be a lot of misery, 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 moments of joy, and then misery and misery. And of course, we don't want to, we don't want to live that way. So this was the, the ultimate in celebration. And if you go to uh, large Jewish communities like New York, Miami, Chicago, uh, on Sukkot, they have huge outdoor celebrations. Thousands of people, they have outdoor concerts, People are dancing in the streets uh, and, and exactly recreating what happened during Temple times. You know, Tampa's a little smaller, but you could still do it. No question about it. What are some of the other cool things? Well, we have something called Ushpizen. Ushpizen are guests or visitors that we celebrate every night of Sukkot. So if you turn your page to the back, to page two, uh, 
hospitality is a very important value and tradition in Judaism. Very important. And it starts with the first Jews. Abraham, the first Jew, his wife, Sarah, they were the ultimate paradigm of hospitality. In fact, it says that they designed this super unique tent that had an opening on each side of the tent, north, south, east, and west, so that if you're traveling in the desert and you see a tent and you see an opening, you're probably going to want to wander inside. This way you didn't have to kind of go around. You saw an opening from which any direction you were traveling. And that's what they would do. They would welcome in visitors and then talk to them about faith in one God. And they were introducing monotheism to the world. And of course, food is the best way to introduce anything. So, uh, And those of you that have gotten married under a chuppah, why do we use a chuppah, a canopy? The origin is to be like Abraham and Sarah's tent, to be under a canopy that has an opening on all four sides because you're trying to set the tone for what your home is going to look like. You're going to build a hospitable home. That's why we get married under a canopy. Yes, it looks nice and people put flowers, but there's actually a spiritual reason for why we get married under a canopy. So hospitality is very important. And here, you're building a new home. It's a temporary home, but it's a home nonetheless. Your sukkah is your new home. So it's a chance to highlight hospitality. But ushpizin are kind of a unique take on hospitality and visitors because you call some of the Jewish leaders, you recall some of the Jewish leaders and the qualities and attributes that they uh, exemplified, you call them to your table and you celebrate who they were. And that's kind of the, the, the essence of this tradition. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joseph, and David. Now if you look on the attribute side, each one represents a different emotional attribute. According to Jewish mysticism, there are seven emotional attributes that every human being has. And there's the seven, same seven emotional attributes by which God expresses himself or herself to us human beings. Kindness, severity, beauty, victory, splendor, foundation or bonding, and kingship. And so when we talk about our relationship with God, there are times when God is conducting himself with the world in one of these attributes, another. And we as human beings also have these same attributes. So sometimes we're kind, and sometimes we're more severe. We're disciplining. Both are, both are good, right? It's not bad to be disciplining. If you have a child, you need to discipline your child. That's your responsibility, absolutely. Uh, beauty or compassion, that might be where you bring the kindness and severity together, and so on and so forth. So each one of these leaders represented a different attribute. Abraham was kindness. Kindness means that Abraham would give and give and give, even when it wasn't in the recipient's best interest. Just keep giving and giving and giving. It's like, you know, you show up with a cup of water, Lily, and someone's there with a pitcher, and they're like, you want water? Here's water, and they start pouring the water, and it's overflowing your cup, and it's making a mess, and you're like, hello, that's, that's enough. I don't need any more, this is too much. But they're not concerned with how much water you need. They're concerned with giving, because they just like to give. Give, 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 give. That's kindness. Severity is more measured. Okay, you want a cup of water. But how much water do you actually need right now? You only need half a cup, right? How much water do you deserve based on your behavior today? A quarter of a cup. Okay, so I'm going to take a half a cup and a quarter of a cup, and I'm going to give you a half of that. That's severity, discipline. Isaac was much more measured in the way he associated with the people around him. Jacob was the best of both worlds. Jacob was the best of both worlds. He combined both together, kindness and severity. He had balance. And that's what beauty is. Beauty is when you combine different things together and you create a complexion, a multifaceted complexion. That is beauty. That was uh, Jacob. Moses, victory, endurance, right? that adrenaline that kicks in that says, you can do this, you're up against the wall, there's two minutes left in the fourth quarter, right? And all of a sudden you find the strength to get it done. 
That was Moses. Always rising to the occasion. Aaron was splendor. Pristine splendor. Beauty in its purest form. It says that Aaron, for example, one of his great qualities, he used to bring peace amongst couples. And he would tell the wife, you know, the husband really wants to get back together with you. Doesn't, and he would tell the husband, you know, the wife, your wife really wants to get back together with you. And they would see it coming from him. And when they saw him, the high priest, and the purity that he represented, their, their problems with each other would simply kind of melt away. And so he really personified this character trait of splendor. Joseph, foundation, bonding, attachment. That was Joseph. Joseph was unique in the fact that he was able to deal with whatever challenge life presented to him and turn it into a successful opportunity. He was able to immerse himself in Egyptian culture, which at the time was the height of civilization, but also the most promiscuous of, uh, 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 civilization of that time as well. He rose to become the second in command after being accused of sexual harassment, being jailed, and yet despite everything, he still maintained his Jewish identity. He was even able to forgive his brothers that tried to kill him and sold him as a slave because he was grounded his connection, his commitment to God and to who he was and what he believed in was so strong that no kind of external force could shake him. So that's uh, Joseph. And then, of course, the last one is David, who represents kingship, nobility. King David, coincidentally, is the most popular Jewish figure in Israel today, not Moses. Now, remember that Israel is not a religious society. But if you survey, and this is a survey that was done a couple of years ago, most popular Jewish figure in Israel today is King David. Why? Because he represents nobility, kingship, the Jewish kingdom being established in the land of Israel. And he He was such a fighter and such a warrior that not only were people afraid of him during his lifetime, but Solomon... Right? King Solomon, his Hebrew name is Shlomo. Why was he named that? Kishalom Hayab Biyamav, because he had peace in his time. You know why he had peace in his time? Because they were still afraid of his dad. And so, uh, yeah, but the, um, the point. But the point is, to be king is not easy. And David was far from being a perfect person. He made some terrible mistakes. But he, on the one hand, could capture the respect and admiration of all the people. Remember, that wasn't easy. You have all these different tribes, 12 tribes, and all of them came to respect David. And even when he made mistakes, he could get down there and prostrate himself and ask for forgiveness like the most humble servant in the kingdom. That's a very difficult thing to do as a king to understand the importance that you serve, but not to be arrogant to place yourself above anyone else. Because a king that doesn't have a nation is not a king. And therefore, you are reliant, you are contingent. Your authority comes from the people. And that was David. So each night of Sukkot, we celebrate another one of these Jewish leaders. We talk about them. We celebrate the ideal that they stood for. We invite them into our homes. And hopefully we learn a little bit from the way that they lived their lives every single day. Uh, We're almost done. The last thing I want to explain is the way the intermediary days work, because I think it's an important distinction. So Passover and Sukkot both are uh, eight-day holidays. The first two days are celebrated as traditional strict holidays. And then the four subsequent days are celebrated as intermediate days. Intermediate days means you still continue the tradition of that particular holiday, whether it's eating in a sukkah or shaking the lulav in a trove on Sukkot or eating matzah on Passover and not eating leavened bread and so on. But it's a day where you can engage in activities. You can go drive, use electricity, a lot of the things that traditionally we would abstain from 
on a holiday. And so practically speaking, it's a great opportunity where families get together and they go on trips, they go on outings, and they celebrate you know, time together with friends and family, which is really what the holidays are all about. So Sukkot is one of those holidays that unfortunately doesn't always get the fanfare that Passover does. Passover is, is, is probably the most popular, most celebrated Jewish holiday on the calendar. Uh, but Sukkot is really a wonderful opportunity to be happy and be joyful for no reason but simply to celebrate who you are and your relationship with your Creator. and To bring those that are around you, your friends and your family together and to celebrate with them. And if you don't have friends or family that are close by, we'll be your friends or family. So feel free to come and celebrate with us. And so that concludes our discussion tonight. And next week, we will wrap up our four-part series. We'll be talking about Simchat Torah, which is the final holiday of the holiday season, where we celebrate the, uh, the reading of the Torah, the, the conclusion of the Torah cycle. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful celebration. So I want to thank everyone for coming in.